Romans chapter 7. And I'm going to put it up here for you. Verses 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Dear Father, we ask that you would make us attentive to your word this morning. These are such important truths that go to the heart of how we come to truly put on your righteousness in our daily lives so that others may see Christ at work in us and through us and be drawn to him. Help us to understand both the opposition that we continue to face from the sin which indwells our flesh and the victory that belongs to us over that sin because of and in Jesus Christ alone. Teach us who we truly are in Him by Your gracious work so that we may walk as vessels of honor who magnify Your name. We ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. When I was still uh, pretty young in the Lord and just finishing up college, actually for a while before that, I, I developed a friendship with a guy named Stan. He's a little older than me. He got saved in the same Bible study that God used to draw me to faith in Jesus Christ, a home Bible study that was led my, by my uh, high school biology teacher, a guy named Mike Turnage. My friend Stan had for many years been much closer to my older brother Jack than he was to me. But after Stan came to faith in Jesus Christ, he and I had that one most important of all things in common. During the same years that my brother was stationed on a Navy destroyer, often on the other side of the world, I was away at college at Texas A&M. When I'd come home, which was quite often, 
I'd see Stan from time to time still. He was a dear brother in Christ, and he had a very kind and loving spirit, but he had had a very wild youth. He struggled a lot to break away from the sin and from the habit of sin that had characterized his youth. And he often seemed to be losing that struggle more than winning it. He had also, over many years, developed a strong friendship with my mom, who treated all of our friends like members of the family. One day when I was home on a weekend from college, Stan showed up at our house, and he struck up a conversation with me and my mother. And he said something that shook me up. After talking for a bit about the turmoil that was persisting in his life, he got a very concerned look on his face, and then he, he said, God won't let go of me, and that's the best thing and the worst thing in my life. Just a couple of weeks later, Stan died in a motorcycle accident. He was uh, riding a little too fast on a dark road out in the sticks where we lived. (laughs) And uh, he was riding without a helmet. And he apparently didn't see a very minimal barricade that was in front of a section of road that was under repair. He went through that barricade at high speed and then hit a long section of rebar. And that was the end of his life on this earth. The words that Stan said that day at our house have come back to me many, many times. God won't let go of me, and that is the best thing and the worst thing in my life. Those are not the words of an, of an unbeliever who is sold out to sin. Those are the words of a redeemed child of God who finds himself still struggling with the habit of sin that is so ingrained in his flesh that even though the sinful flesh has been sentenced to death by Christ, it continues to fight to the last gasp to maintain some kind of control. While that battle may seem more intense for some believers than for others, I'm convinced it's a battle in which every believer is engaged every single day. And I believe it's an ongoing battle that Paul addresses in this great passage in Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. I should say again at the outset that this passage and this portion of the epistle from Romans 6 to Romans 8 is about sanctification, not justification. He's already presented justification. That is, it's not about how we become righteous in the eyes of God. It's about how we come to put on the righteousness of God in practice, day by day. Another thing that's critically important to understand about Romans 7 and this particular passage is that the passage we're looking at this morning has a lot more to say about the struggle that we that we continue to have with sin than it has to say about the resolution to that struggle. Paul will get to the resolution in chapter 8. We'll look at that next week. But I'm going to try hard not to jump ahead because there is great value to us in being familiar with what God says about this conflict. 
And as we'll see at the end of chapter 7, Paul gives us great confidence that the struggle between the flesh and the inner man, between the law of sin and the law of God that we face during our sojourn on this earth is not the end of the story. Now, some respected Bible scholars who have written about this passage believe that Paul is speaking in retrospect about his personal struggle for righteousness as a Pharisee before his miraculous encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, the encounter that resulted in his conversion. According to that view, Paul is looking back on his pre-conversion experience as a very committed lawkeeper. But now, as a believer, he's seeing it from a, a very different perspective and a different awareness than he had at the time. There's a second view that's gained quite a lot of popularity, especially recently, and it's that the struggle that Paul depicts here is that of every human being, whether Jew or Gentile, who is confronted with the law of Moses. That it is essentially a continuation of what Paul has been saying in the preceding verses about sin's response to the law. Both of those two views that I just mentioned hold that the struggle of which Paul is speaking here does not and could not apply to a true believer in Jesus Christ. But the position to which I hold strongly, one that is shared by virtually all of the great reformers such as Luther, Calvin, and Deffenbaugh, is that Paul is speaking in very personal terms here about his own struggle as a believer. His struggle against the sinful impulses that still indwelled his flesh even as he was writing these words. A struggle from which he was still learning to experience greater and greater freedom as he learned to walk in greater and greater dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I believe that the struggle he lays out here is common to every believer, and that while we can most certainly lay hold of a great measure of victory this side of heaven in this battle, this struggle will only be fully and finally resolved when we stand in the presence of God, glorified. I believe it is that very hope of our eventual adoption as sons, what Paul calls the redemption of our body in 8.23, on which he focuses later in, in uh, chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. But before Paul gets to glorification, he still has a lot more to say about sanctification. And that's where we are in chapters 6, 7, and much of chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to attempt in this message to lay out the arguments for the various positions held on this passage by others, or to defend my position relative to the others. But I will direct you to an excellent book that Ron Manus placed in my hands a couple of weeks ago that presents the three major views, and then it very even-handedly compares and contrasts them. It's uh, Perspectives on Our Struggle with Sin, Three Views on Romans 7. And this will be back in the library as soon as I pull my post-its out and return it. I also want to mention that uh, there's a whole shelf of excellent commentaries and books about the book of Romans in our library. We have an amazing library, thanks to to Ron and Kay's work. 
And anyone who would like to check those books out to dig in a little further into what scholars have, uh, respected Bible scholars of this age and other ages have said about Romans, uh, should go and check it out. All right, here's where we're going this morning. Paul shows us in this passage that there are two sides in this conflict. The law of sin versus the law of God. And there are two base camps. The flesh versus the inner man. We're going to talk about the question, which is the real me? And then we're going to see that the battle that Paul discusses here isn't supposed to be easy, but that there is a guarantee of victory through Jesus Christ. In chapter 7, verse 14, Paul moves from past tense to present tense, and he continues to speak in the first person just as he did in verses 7 to 13. So while he was previously talking about things that he experienced in the past, he is now talking about things that impact his experience in the present as he's writing these words. He lays out here a fierce conflict in which he himself is engaged. And he lays it out, I believe, in order that all believers may understand that we too are engaged in the same pitched battle. Verse 14 makes the transition from what he just said about sin's response to the law into a discussion of the battle that we as believers continue to face due to the presence of sin. He said in that previous passage that sin taking opportunity through the commandment of the law produced in us even greater sin. And it resulted in our death. But he also said that the law is holy and that the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he concluded that because sin affected his death through that which was good, sin was proven to be utterly sinful. Now in verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Literally, he says, I am fleshly. Sold into bondage and to sin. He introduces in this verse, verse 14, the stark contrast between that which is spiritual in nature and that which is fleshly or physical in nature. And then he immediately presents that contrast between the spiritual and physical as a conflict, indeed as a war in the rest of chapter 7. The two sides in the conflict are the law of sin versus the law of God. In verses 22 to 25, if you drop down a little bit in this passage, you'll see that Paul presents in verse 7, uh, chapter 7 of Romans, the conflict in terms of two laws. The law of God versus the law of sin. And I take the word law in these verses with the lowercase l. Because I believe Paul's not talking primarily about the law of Moses at this point but about two paths or principles that are in opposition to each other. Now, this is consistent with what he said in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, for though I am, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, though not being under myself under the law, 
that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. And what I want you to see there is that he says, even though, it, even if he is without the law of Moses, he is never without the law of God. I believe what Paul means by the law of God here is the principle or path of life that is in keeping with the character of God. That which is righteous and holy. That law or principle of life is not founded on commandments that can never cover all the bases of human relationships and human behavior. It is based, that law is based on who God is. His character tells us everything that we need to know about how to think and speak and act, even in the absence of commandments. Even though we have been freed from the law of Moses, which could never make us righteous because of sin's response to that law, we will always be blessedly bound to the law of God, that is, to the standard of God's own holy character. You are to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19.2 The law of God, as we said last week, is a perfect standard that never changes because God doesn't change. So the law of God is one side of this conflict. The other side is what Paul calls the law of sin. And the law of sin, I believe, is quite simply all that is in opposition to the law of God. It is that which stands in contradiction to and in violation of God's holy and righteous character. So there are two sides in this battle, and there are two base camps. And when you're engaged in a battle, it is very advantageous to know the location of the enemy's camp. Especially when you already know that that camp is somewhere on your own turf. (laughs) If you know the location of the enemy's camp, then you know where to direct your offensive efforts. And from the defensive perspective... You, you pretty much know from which direction the attacks are going to come. So you fortify that front. Now, Paul is quite clear here about the location of the enemy's camp. And that location is our flesh, our mortal bodies. In chapter 6, verse 12, right after saying, Therefore, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, therefore, do not let sin reign where? In your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. So we know from that exhortation that it's possible for sin to continue to reign in some sense in our mortal bodies, even though we are in reality already dead to sin and alive to God. And to whatever extent we fail to heed that exhortation, to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, to whatever extent we continue to allow sin to reign, the locus, the location of sin's reign is in our mortal body. And I think what Paul means by that is the very physical parts of our body, the members of our bodies. In 7.14, Paul says, 
We know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. Now, he's not contradicting here his earlier statements in chapter 6 where he said, we've been freed from slavery to sin and have died to sin in Christ. I believe what he's saying here is that while on the one hand the regenerate man, the one he later calls in this chapter the inner man, has been absolutely freed from the penalty and power of sin, the flesh, on the other hand, the physical man, has not yet fully realized that same freedom. Indeed, all that he goes on to say in this chapter and in much of chapter 8 is dedicated to explaining how we come to realize that freedom from the influence that sin has over our physical beings. So it is that part of us that is fleshly, our physical body, that is in some sense still in bondage to sin. Now that same connection between the flesh and sin shows up in verse 18, where he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And again in verses 22 to 24, he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is where? In my members. Then he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death or the body of this death? We should note that Paul associates his mind here with the inner man, the regenerate man. And he associates his body with the one doing the sinning. Now we'll see in chapter 8 that that does not mean that our minds are exempt from the influence of sin. In fact, the issue of what we do with our minds is fundamental to the resolution of this, of this conflict. But what we see here is that the enemy's camp is the very parts of our physical bodies. Our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, those parts that make us distinctively male or female. And of course, that one little part that James says is set among our members is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. You all know what that part is, right? It's the tongue. Our body parts are the enemy's trenches on our home turf. And it's very important for us to know that. Because then we know where the enemy's camp is. On the friendly side of this battle, the base camp of the law of God is the inner man. And the stronghold of the inner man is the mind. But again, that stronghold must be carefully guarded if we are to gain advantage over the enemy. And in chapter 8, Paul will tell us again that what we do with our mind is foundational. All right. So which is the real me? In this passage, Paul uses the words I and me to refer to both of these camps. So which is he saying is the real me, the essential me? I think that's a pretty important question, isn't it? Unfortunately, I believe that Paul answers it very directly right here in this passage. 
there are a number of points in the passage in which Paul makes it very clear that the sin he continues to struggle against is alien to his true identity. Look at these verses, chapter 7, verse uh, verses 16 and 17. He says, If I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. And then in verse 17 he says, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. In verses 19 and 20 he says, For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the thing that I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And then in verse 25, at the end of the passage, he says, So then on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So who's the real Paul in these verses? The guy who's serving the law of God and who hates sin or the guy who goes on sinning? Well, it seems to me that Paul's pretty clear about the answer to that question. He says, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. He says, I am no longer the one doing the sinning. Rather, it is the sin that dwells within me that's doing the sinning. I believe he's saying that the redeemed, regenerate man who joyfully concurs with the law of God is his true identity. The real Paul is the regenerate Paul. And that new man, the new man who was buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life, that man does not sin. And while the Apostle John has a different way of putting things than Paul does, I think John is saying much the same thing in his first epistle as Paul is saying here. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, John says, And you know that He, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. Then he immediately says, No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. A few verses later in verse 9, he says, No one who is born of God practices, and literally the word is does, sin. Because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Guys, I believe those words mean exactly what they say. The one who is born of God cannot sin precisely because he is born of God. And in him there is no sin. But this is the same John who said earlier in his same epistle, 1 John, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, present tense, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we reconcile these two equally forceful declarations? One that says He was born of God cannot sin, and the other that says if we as believers say we have no sin right now, 
that we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I believe the resolution is actually very straightforward without watering down or qualifying either of those declarations. When we commit sin, the new man, the one who is born of God, is not the one doing the sinning. I don't think what John says is uh, different in essence than what Paul is saying here in Romans 7. But when Paul says in Romans 7, uh, 17 and Romans 7.20, I am no longer the one doing it, the sinning, but sin which dwells in me, we must understand that he is not engaging in some kind of blame casting to dodge his own accountability for righteousness. Paul took his accountability before God to put away sin and to live righteously very, very seriously. In 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, Paul says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. A little earlier in Romans, back in Romans 6, we saw Paul speak in very forceful terms about God's calling to us as his redeemed not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And then he went on to command us to present the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness and ourselves as slaves to God. Those are very powerful commands and images. So when he says here that he's no longer the one doing the sinning, but it's the sin that dwells within him, he is not saying it so that he can dodge his responsibility to God to act righteously. He's saying it so that we will know and understand the nature of the conflict that we face as believers. The goal of his teaching is not that we will justify our sin and sin all the more. It is that we will walk by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh. It is that we will realize the victory over our sins here and now. And that, again, will become very clear in chapter 8. So I pray that you'll stay the course with this. Now I'm going to present an analogy that I've found helpful for uh, explaining this battle of natures, especially to my kids. And uh, an analogy that helps me remember my assignment in the midst of the battle. But, of course, any analogy that's contrived by humans is not inspired, and so you can feel free to take it or leave it. First, the question, which guy are we feeding? From the perspective of our daily experience as believers, it is as though, and I'm going to put the emphasis, emphasis on the words as though, we are chained at the ankle to this old dead guy, and we're just dragging him around. But from the standpoint of our experience, he's really only mostly dead. We can either starve him to the point at which he's hardly even noticeable by walking in trust in God and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Or we can walk according to the flesh and in effect keep giving that old guy CPR and feeding him scraps and watching him get bigger and more lively and more powerful. The more we feed him and breathe life into him, the stronger he gets. If we do a whole lot of that kind of thing, 
we find that we're so encumbered by that old mostly dead guy that he's not so mostly dead anymore. And he has a greater and greater impact on what we think and say and do. And my thanks to Jeff Hayden again for the illustrations that I commissioned. I think some believers get to the point where they set a separate place at the table for the old man and they give him the best they've got while they starve the new man. When we do that, that old guy happily hogs our conversations and controls our relationships and makes a big sinful mess of our lives. But because God is at work in the believer both to will and to work for his good pleasure, I believe that most Christians struggle with alternating at some points between feeding the old man and feeding the new man. But what they see over time is that their true nature as redeemed saints gets stronger and stronger and the old man gets weaker and weaker. That's the way it's supposed to work. Again, we'll learn much more next week about the care and feeding of the new man and about how to starve out the old one. What's the value of knowing which is the real me? It's huge. (laughs) I've said before that I believe one of Satan's most crippling lies in the life of the believer is the lie that says we have not really been freed from the power of sin. A Christian who buys into that lie is defeated before he ever even gets started in the practical, day-to-day struggle against sin. But the believer who recognizes that he has been made new and that his inner man, the new man, the redeemed man, is his true self and that that true self has no part in sin, that believer is able to put his ongoing struggle against the sins of the flesh in proper perspective. He recognizes that the residual of sin in his flesh is an alien influence that does not define him. It does not determine who he is or what he must do. It doesn't trap him into staying where he has been even if he was there five minutes ago. He recognizes that the only power that the sin which dwells in his mortal body possesses to influence his thoughts and words and actions is the power that he allows it to have because sin is foreign to his true nature. That believer does not despair when he stumbles. He stands back up and he confidently perseveres in the fight knowing with absolute certainty that he is on the winning side. Now, I'm okay with believers pointing out that they're just sinners saved by grace. Toward the end of his life, Paul said to Timothy that he still considered himself to be the foremost of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 But lest we think that that line of thinking should have emphasis, we need to acknowledge that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 17 was far more typical of his statements about the nature and identity of the believer. He said, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, why? That they who live should no longer live for themselves, 
but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And I love this. Verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul's talking about believers here, and he says, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Instead, we see one another as new creatures in Christ, set apart to live not for ourselves, but entirely for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Is that how you see other believers? Or are you always picking at the stuff that's not quite right? Is that how you see yourself? If it isn't, I believe you need to change your spiritual glasses and see yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ as God commands you to see them. Beloved, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.3 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. His prayer for the saints in that same chapter is that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that we may know the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. And then he tells us about that power in the rest of Ephesians 1. He says, That power is in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The power that belongs to us as our birthright in Christ is the very power that raised Jesus from the dead and gave Him authority over all creation. And it is that power that is in keeping with our true nature as the redeemed of God. At the end of his, In a prayer at the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul says, it is according to that same power that it's work, is at work within us that God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine. Do you believe that power belongs to you? You need to believe it. Bank on it. Because that is part and parcel of who you are in Christ. And the battle isn't supposed to be easy. Paul uses the language of warfare to describe this ongoing battle against sin, the sin that dwells within us in chapter 7 of Romans. In Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews uses the imagery of a race when he talks about our struggle against sin. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. And he closes that little section by saying, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. It's not supposed to be easy. It's very significant that the race that the writer of Hebrews described is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It demands perseverance and endurance. It isn't easy, and for most of us, it isn't over very quickly. (laughs) Immediately after those four verses in Hebrews 12, the writer phases without any discernible transition from talking about our battle as believers to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us into the matter of God's gracious work in our lives to discipline us as his children. A discipline that he says is always painful and sorrowful. But it is the discipline by which we come to share in God's holiness and to experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Both our practical victory over sin and our participation in the holiness of God involve painful struggle. Those are two sides of the same coin. And we shouldn't try to deny the reality that both processes are going to be painful. And we shouldn't run from that necessary pain. We should embrace it the same way a marathoner embraces the pain of grueling training. We know that this momentary light affliction that we suffer for the sake of godliness produces an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 We also know that we have a guarantee of victory. In verses 21 to 23, Paul recaps Romans 7. He recaps the nature of the battle in which he finds himself engaged, the battle that's common to every believer. And then he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? His answer in verse 25 points us entirely to the author and perfecter of faith as the one victor over sin. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting that right there he doesn't elaborate on that answer at all. (laughs) He doesn't yet explain how we lay hold of this promised freedom from the body of death that comes to us through Jesus Christ, he simply turns our eyes to Jesus. And then before launching into a detailed explanation in chapter 8 of how we do, in fact, lay hold of this victory over sin in practice, he simply recaps one more time at the end of verse 25 the nature of the conflict. He says, So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. I love the way Paul presents this very concisely, this answer in verse 25. It's perfectly in keeping with the way he has presented all the wonderful promises of God ever since he moved from condemnation to justification back in chapter 3, verse 21. 
I walked through these verses a couple of weeks ago, but they're worth looking at again. In 3, 21 to 22, he said that the righteousness of God that is apart from the law comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Then two verses later, in verse 24, he says we have been justified, how? As a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In 5, 1, he said, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 5.11, he said, we have now received the promise of reconciliation with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 5.17, he said, we who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. How? Through the one, Jesus Christ. In 5.21, He said, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In 6.11, he commanded us to reckon or consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In 6.23, he said, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And now in the last two verses of Romans 7, he says, Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope that pattern is very clear by now. (laughs) Our salvation in every respect isn't a change in situation. It is a person. Our salvation is Jesus Christ. Our Lord. We die to our depraved, sinful self and we put on Jesus Christ. It's important that we understand what God has revealed about how we lay hold of that salvation, both positionally and practically. But it is of huge importance that we know from whom and in whom that salvation comes. It comes in and through and by and from and for Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is our salvation. I love 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does all that matter? (laughs) Well, I hope it's obvious, but it matters because it's the difference between life and death. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We must never forget that life, true life, is relationship and unity and fellowship with God in Jesus Christ. So everything that we do to nurture that relationship moves us more and more into the realm of life and further away from the realm of death. Loving Father, we thank you for uh, the forcefulness of the things that you've set before us here. We struggle with this passage. Godly men have struggled with this passage for a very long time. But, Lord, there are some things that do seem clear.
we acknowledge that we continue to struggle with sin. I don't think anybody disputes that. And we acknowledge, Lord, that, uh, that we must be armed and fortified by the Holy Spirit to wage this battle against the sin which continues to indwell our flesh. Above all, Father, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the victor and, and that it is only by your grace. It's not at all because of anything that we've done, but it is by your grace in him that that victory belongs to us. We know how this is going to end, Father. And we also know that right here, right now, you have called us and enabled us to lay hold of victory over indwelling sin. And we look forward to learning more about how we can do that, Father. But this morning we claim that victory and we claim all of it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.